You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get started here and have a, a little discussion about science fiction and uh, the stories we heard. Um, and with me, once again, Lisa Goldstein, Michaela Rosner, and Pat Murphy, the Brazen Hussies. Now, they call themselves the Brazen Hussies for a reason, and I'm going to, like, see here, I'm going from this handheld portable device, I'm going to attempt to read their motto or what I take to be the core of their of the Brazen Hussies model from their website, and I think this is really relevant to every single person here. We've all heard the same story when we tell people we write science fiction. I used to read science fiction and fantasy back when I was a kid, people say, hey, what does growing up mean to have to, you have to lose your imagination? We want to let people know that today's science fiction and fantasy isn't just for kids. We want to get out the word that it's sophisticated, subtle, fascinating, compelling, and topical literature for adults is being published as science fiction. That literature includes our own novels, of course. Speculative fiction, also known as SF, science fiction, fantasy, and sci-fi, as long as Harlan Nelson isn't in the room, <laughs> is more than just elves and dwarves, robots, and spaceships, much more. If you read science fiction and fantasy when you were a kid, come back and revisit the amazing worlds you used to love. If you've never read science fiction, give it a try. That's the brazen hussies. Now, uh, Pat, uh, I, I understand that you're, you're the the uh, progenitor, the author of the motto. So tell us about this motto and why you formed the Brazen Hussies and what what's what's with all that. Well, I think Mikey actually wrote, uh, Michaela actually wrote the uh, wrote the manifesto, but I would I think you did. But I, I I'll tell you why the Brazen Hussies formed initially and sort of where where it came from, um, the three of us decided that, uh, you know, we wanted to promote our work. We wanted uh, to uh, do a lot more readings and get a lot more people interested in our work. And uh, we had set up a sort of a, a bookstore tour, and I was sending out a press release about it, and I realized I was writing a letter about, you know, how wonderful we were. And then I couldn't figure out who how to sign it. Because <laughs> it's pretty uh, ballsy to be writing a letter about how wonderful you are and sending it out. And uh, I realized we needed a return address. And that was when I said, OK, we are promoting ourselves like the brazen hussies we truly want to be. And uh, the return address was the brazen hussies with uh, my address. And then we, we, formed, we created a website. and. Uh, um, Michaela, I think, weren't you the one who first started sort of putting together the manifesto? Yeah, there was some, there, we kind of formed it, I think, together. I, had, I think the, the bit that rings a bell with me about, was about talking to people about, because I, I live in a bunch of different communities in a sense. Um, I, I'm in the martial arts community, and I was also in the somatics community, and, and here I'm also writing this stuff, and people would say, well, what do you write? And I'd say, well, I write science fiction and speculative fiction, and, and that was the response I'd get every single time is, oh, I used to read that kind of stuff when I was a kid, you know, and it's like, and I'm just sitting there like going, 
<laughs> you know, like, it's it's not, you know, I said, you know, it actually is still robots, but they're not your mother's robots. <laughs> and, you know, we have all this stuff, and I'd say, but, you know, we're really more into Vingian post-human singularities now, and they just kind of, their eyes would start rolling in their heads. And, I, you know, I'd say, so have you read Le Guin? And, you know, all these names, they would kind of maybe remember Asimov and Heinlein. I said, you have no idea. I said, it's, it's an, it's, it's a literature of ideas and imagination beyond imagination, and you're just really depriving yourself by, not to mention depriving me of an income, but you're depriving, <laughs> <laughs> you're depriving yourself of just amazing, you know, this is, this is not regular writing, although it can be as well written as regular writing. And, and some people I think I converted, and I think that's the part, my part is the part about about this response, but what I have found since then, and even people I've kind of converted, it's, you know, I've begun to realize it's maybe not for everybody. I had a friend who came to a, a reading and book signing I did in San Diego, who's a very old friend of mine within the martial arts community, who, who, bought, who bought one of the Stars books, which is actually essentially, a, it's a historical novel. They're historical novels about Catherine de Medici. They're also food porn. And, you know, and there's a very strong fantasy element in it, but I kind of think it should be as a book that other people could read. They could go, oh, it's a historical this and that and the other thing. And after reading it, she said, it was, she bought a copy of my book, which was very nice of her. And after she said, I just found it was so interesting to pick up something you'd written and get a glimpse into your strange little mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I'm going, well, thanks for buying the so I don't know, it may be it's still a very acquired taste, and I, I have run into people who just, it's, it's hard for them, you know, just the idea of, like, taking these big steps of the imagination. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm still out there. I'm an evangelist in sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I find interesting these days is science fiction has made enormous inroads into, um, you know, mainstream culture, yeah. but often it's not labeled as science fiction. So you look at a lot of movies that are science fiction in their conceit, but yeah. are coming from a different angle. Being John Malkovich, yeah. um, oh, you know, wonderful. that's that's gr a great movie, and it's of course yeah. right in the speculative fiction yep. arena. But yep. that's not how it's marketed. That's not how it's viewed. And then you get, uh, you know, tons of Hollywood movies that are yeah. just not not viewed as science fiction, but certainly use science fiction tropes and science fiction attitudes. And I just find, I've, I've, I'm finding it interesting. I haven't figured out how to work with this, but it's, uh, it's just an interesting turn of events. Well, I think it's actually, I think it's hard to coast ahead of the culture now. I'd say the science part of it is, you know, that still goes forging on ahead with science, but the culture is caught up to it, so it's very hard, in a sense, to write science fiction because now there is a lot of public culture saturation in what we used to call, what used to be called sci-fi used to mean franchise works, which was, which was fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, people who wrote Star Trek novelizations and Star Wars novelizations, and that used to specifically mean those kinds of shared world and coming out of visual media. And what's happened is that now everything that's speculative fiction, or at least science fiction, is now called sci-fi. And I know that there's a lot of old school science fiction writers who this just drives, like Harlan, 
absolutely insane because there, there's science fiction, which is literature, and there's sci-fi, which is, but you know, the culture itself has overtaken us now. And you know, we may sit there and say sci-fi is popular culture, media, science fiction, and there's science fiction, but the culture itself is now so thoroughly kind of absorbed and adopted it that, you know, it's caught up to us and it's kind of hard to coast on ahead of it in that sense. Well, as Kim Stanley Robinson says, we are living in a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. somebody back in the 1970s had written about the year 20, 2009 like this. Everybody would say, God, I hope the future isn't that terrible. I want <laughs> yeah. something to, to blow something up. Yeah. Now, now, Lisa, your, your novel, what, what you read, and I think all three of these uh, pieces we heard tonight share this kind of theme, and I think this is what science fiction does really well. It's transforms, it's transformative literature. It takes, all these start out in what nominally seems like the world we all go to, we all see on CNN, what you read about in the San Francisco Chronicle, but you all transform it slowly, bit by bit, through your writing into something that's quite different and actually probably maybe much more entertaining. So, Lisa. Well, somebody, somebody <laughs> said, or, or maybe I said, I can't remember, but um, that my, my stuff is about magic in everyday life, and that's what I, I really like. That's, that's sort of what I write, and really you can't, I mean, if you tell people it's science fiction, they really don't, you know, they don't get it. I mean, I, I think mine is, my stuff, maybe all of ours is more fantasy or magic realism or speculative fiction or whatever, but, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not spaceships, and that, that's not what I write. I mean, I love that stuff, but, you know, it's... You guys are writing uh, literature of the imagination. Thank I mean, you. Yes. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, that's what. It, well, that's what it seems like to me. I mean, any of these stories, I think, could easily be a could easily have been published in a mainstream magazine. I well, mean, I tried to. I I was trying to call my stuff magic realism for a while, but I gave that up. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> well, I think magic realism probably has slight has about that much more market appeal than science fiction. I know, fiction, so I know. And also I, I had to be <laughs> South American, so that didn't work. I think also speculative fiction is a broader umbrella because, yeah. because Lisa is, because you like to write fantasy, but both Pat and I have written, Pat's written very science fiction, science fiction, and I've written science, you yeah, know, stuff I count sure. very much science fiction, but th by putting it under the umbrella of speculative fiction, we can just write whatever we want within that broad umbrella. And, and it still fits in still very clearly our own individual writing, mm -hmm. which, is, which is really nice, which is. Well, what I did with this was I, I was just, I thought, well, I'm just gonna write what I like, what I would like to read, yeah. and then I'll think about marketing it later, yeah. which is probably, <laughs> maybe a big mistake, I don't know, <laughs> maybe you know, it may get me into a lot of trouble. I like what you said about, uh, you know, uh, starting at reality and, and, I mean, I've always been very fond of work that sort of takes a left turn at reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though I write a wide variety of things now, when I was a kid and read fantasy novels, I loved the ones that started in the everyday world and then you went through the back of a wardrobe or you went, you know, down a rabbit hole, you went somewhere and something was different. And I think people are fascinated with the um, looking for, uh, you know, magic gateways from the real world, whether they're, you know, uh, 
uh, a train station that takes you to Hogwarts or a, a wardrobe that takes you to Narnia or, um, you know, a house in a tornado that takes you to Oz uh -huh. or, you know, you're looking for um, something the, the secret underlying the world. And you see, I put it, I put it all together because it's like, okay, that's the, those are the portals into fantasy worlds. Well, in science, a lot of the time you're looking at invisible things. You're looking at things no one else can see. You're figuring out the secret knowledge. And same, same thing, yeah. different, different portals, but it's all the same going, going deeper, going to the more interesting place. Well, we're also at a point technologically and scientifically where um, the difference between the scientific understanding of the world and the fantastic slash religious understanding of the world is starting to disappear with yeah. with uh, quantum theory and, and uh, neural, neural imaging. I mean, we're beginning to see that uh, um, the, the fantastic is actually has some kind of realistic mathematical analog out there. We haven't, can't quite write the equations yet. I think there was a, a lot of that back in the 70s and early 80s when you had people like Fritjof Capra writing the Tao of Physics and things like mm -hmm. the Dancing Wu Li Masters, which were bestsellers, you know, and which I even made myself wave through. But there's well, there was a lot of that that exact kind of balance between the two instead of cutting one off from the other, you know. And, well, and it's interesting too the panoply of religions in, in your book and uh, your story because. Uh, there's that um, we're finding now too that religions are starting to accommodate science more. Right? Some are. Some, yeah. <laughs> some are. Some, some are. are just just shutting down the door. Yeah. But, uh, when you talk here at the Dalai Lama, it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's a fascinating oh, yeah. perspective yeah, on it. Buddhists have always had a very interesting take on science. They're not. They aren't against again it. Now, now one other thing I noticed that a commonality between your stories is that um, you. Uh, you two both wrote in the first person, and you wrote in the second person. This isn't necessarily the standard issue choice for this, and I'd like you all to, to talk about that. Um, Lisa? Well, I just um, wanted to do something I hadn't done before, which was writing a novel in a first person to see if I could sustain um, a voice throughout a long novel. And I'm about halfway through, so so far I guess I have. But. Um, I really, I really like the character, and I really like all the characters. So it's just, it's sort of, it's really fun just writing. I just really like look forward to getting back to it, even though it's frustrating because I don't know where it's going. But um, well, I know the end. But um, yeah, it's um, I, you know, I keep like coming up with things that this guy would say, you know, <laughs> and I write them down and look for places to put them in. Well, what's interesting to me is, uh, is you're giving a first-hand perception of some things that nobody has ever seen before because you're making up because there's a, a speculative uh, fiction element in there. And so that must change, you know, uh, either you as a writer or you as a person. Hmm. I, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I am getting more into this guy's head, so maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Does it, does it, is it uh, harder to write the speculative fiction parts than the, you know, everyday interactions? Oh. Or do you have, do you find that one informs they're, the other? They're both hard, but in different ways. Well, how, what I mean different the, ways? Well, the day-to-day the -day stuff is hard because, you know, everybody knows what the day-to-day -day looks like, so you have to find a way to make it interesting or make it more specific, you know, make it specific to this particular family. 
and then the fantasy is hard. I mean, fantasy is always hard. It's just you know finding a way to make it believable, and to make um, you know make it believable that people will see all this strange stuff and and go through all this strange stuff, and they believe it, and and the reader has to believe it too, and also making it try to um, fit it to the theme of the book and the characters of the book. So, well, Pat, your short story also does this. You're like a first-person witness to things that most of us have never seen. Well, one of the things that's interesting, one of the things that fascinates me about writing in the first person is you don't know what's actually, you, the reader, don't know uh, whether or not the character is reliable or not. Um, one of the things about this story is I don't actually know if there's a fantasy element in this story. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm reading it to a group of people who are expecting a fantasy element, I suspect everyone sees a fantasy element in the story. I don't know if it's a fantasy story or not. Uh, my second novel, the, the Falling Woman, is told in the first person because there's ambiguity in my mind as to what's going on. Um, and if you're telling it in the first person, that ambiguity can be there as opposed to me, the author, telling you that this happened. The character is saying this happened. And the character doesn't say, this is what happened. She says, this is what I believe happened. So it's, there's interesting shades uh, of what's going on when you work in the first person. And I, I find, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking about sort of the mainstream versus fantasy. My last novel, The Wild Girls, actually doesn't have any science fiction or fantasy elements. It's a, it's a young adult slash children's book. And it was very interesting to write um, because I, at one point in, as I was finishing up the book, I was sort of going, well, is enough going on here? I mean, nothing, it's, it has science fiction sensibilities. Characters are sort of larger than life characters, but nothing, overtly fantastic happens. And I had to sort of reassure myself that the real world could be enough. And it was well received. It seems to have been enough for a lot of people, but, uh, but it's, kind, it's interesting. I, I like playing on the boundary of uh, where is the science fiction, where is the fantasy, you know, do, I, whether, whether it's there or not is often in the eye of the beholder. Uh, well, I love this idea of um, science, <clears throat> Uh, a story like yours, this, that blurring the line as to whether the speculative fiction aspects are uh, the result of an unreliable narrator mm -hmm. or actual something weird is happening in the mm -hmm. world. And, and that's a, that brings a, a, as you say, that's audience dependent. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that's very, very interesting. Oh, yeah. I suspect if you read this story in The New Yorker, you'd go, nothing strange is going on. Rocky is just a programmer, uh, and she's projecting odd things onto him, and it's a mirror, and her cats are acting like cats, and, you know, <laughs> so that's the way that's the way it is. But if, I, if it is in fantasy and science fiction, it will be read differently. Um, and yeah, it, uh, the viewer the viewer affects the work. Um, Mar Marcel Duchamp has a saying: the viewer completes the work. And yeah, you you bring yourself to the story. Um, I write the words on the page, but you complete it. It's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of fiction. <laughs> 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 
All right, Michaela, you wrote yours in the second person, which is a, a you know, perspective that is very rarely yeah. used. So talk about that. That's that's um, interesting. I picked it because um, I teach and I teach my students' point of view, and there's interesting different things you can do with second person point of view, which I try and trot them through what their what their options are, and then I kind of felt like, well, you know. I'm talking the talk, but I've never walked the walk because I've never actually written a piece myself in second person. And when I started getting ready to write this piece, which I had been thinking about for four years, I went, this is perfect because usually second person has, depending on how you're applying it, it has a sort of creepy quality to it because the author is sort of authoritarianly and fascistically projecting <laughs> the persona of the, uh, onto the reader. You know, or it can be. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is in this particular way. And, and it always has kind of a, a weird feeling to it. Pat wrote a very good, a wonderful story in second person um, called Women in the Trees, which is actually in her collection Points of Departure, which is out, out there, and which has a different affect. It still has a weird affect, but it's very clear who the character in that one is, whereas mine is more projecting directly onto the reader. And so when you start getting into second person, you know, as a writing craft thing, it's really interesting how much you can play around with it. But this is the first one I've done, and now I kind of felt like I needed what I want to do. I probably won't come back to second person. And the novel I'm in the in the middle of writing is actually first oh, person, wow. and I'm about 400 pages into it. And it's and again, I'm doing the same thing with the nice thing about first person, especially depending on who the character is. You can have a very sympathetic, unreliable narrator. And which is what I'm doing, and this is a science, it's very much a science fiction novel in the classic sense, it's that it's socially extrapolative, but it has virtually no sense of wonder elements to it at all. Now, that's an interesting, if, if you're extrapolating without wonder, what, what, are you, what do you have left? It's pretty grim. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's no, there's no razzle-dazzle science, no stepping across a threshold into a, a wonderful reality, instead it's saying, Look what's going on in the world today, and oh crap! Look where we may be going. It's it's so it's science. It's very classically science fiction in that sense of extrapolating what's happening in the environment and pushing it further, and what's happening in the culture. In that sense, it's it's kind of a time honored science fiction thing. But there's no no great mechanical or wonderful science discoveries or anything. Nothing's going to save us. No magic uh, fuel that's going to. No. Avert the fuel crisis, clean up the no. globe, nah. stop war and hunger famine. No, none this of is that? a cautionary oh. tale. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, I just, yeah, no one's going to buy it now. <laughs> it's, it's a novel of character, let's put it that way. Uh, Pat, tell us about your second person story. Um, the uh, the woman, woman in the Trees. Uh, one of the other reasons we uh, formed the Brazen Hussies is so that we could sit around and praise each other's work. <laughs> 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 Works pretty well. Um, but uh, I really, it, that was an interesting story for me. It is a, it is a story about an abused woman. Um, and what I, when I wrote the story, I realized I had written it in the second person. I workshopped it, and everyone uh, in the workshop sort of said, why is this in the second person? It should be in the third person or the first person. And so I actually got, uh, I started rewriting it um, in the third person, and then I realized, yeah, no, yeah. it's the second person, yeah. because I want to put you, the reader, into yeah. this position. I want you to not be able to escape mm -hmm. in the same way that the character can't escape. Yeah. And in 
in as long as it's in the third person or even in the first person, you have a different kind of distance from it. And you're right, Michaela, that that when it's second person, there's a creepiness to it, and the author is pushing you around, but you kind of can't escape it. Like when you were saying you're crouching in the bathtub with the goldfish bowl, (laughs) uh, you know, protecting the goldfish, and you hear your lover coming up the stairs, it's like... Man, how did I get myself into this? I don't know. I don't want to be here, but here I am. And uh, but there's a, an inescapability about the second person that I find really intriguing. Yeah. Well, also, I guess for speculative fiction, it, it adds a an element of transformation because yeah. you've transformed the reader into your into your character in the story. Tyrannically so. Yes. <laughs> I, I really it, it gets around the believability problem because it's you. It's you. It's you. It's you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's not well, I don't believe this would happen to somebody. Oh my god, it's happening to me. <laughs> I can't get out of it. No. I really like what you were saying about uh, this being transformative literature. Yeah. Um because I think that is what we all try to do, um, you know, show the world in a different light, turn literature inside out in mm-hmm. some way. We were talking, some of us were talking uh, at the break about uh, fairy tales and different views of fairy tales. And fairy tales have been transformed by Disney into very clean, sweet sorts of things. And some of us are trying to transform them back into the the darker raw material that, that that those sweet tales came from. And I think that's one of the things I was playing with in in my story, you know, yeah. revisiting Peter Pan and going back to what the book version of Peter Pan yeah. contains, but the movie version, the Disney version does not. Well, one of that's one of the interesting, I think, uh, aspects, really effective aspects of that story is the many views of a fairy within it. It, it, they kind of scintillate off each other, reflect off of one another, and it cre- makes it uh, a, a much more complicated story and much more entertaining. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're right. Entertain <laughs> <laughs> oh, and complicate things. We do yeah. that, too. And refute things, too. Yeah. You know? There's a lot of fairy tales. I've started rewriting some just because they piss me off so much, yeah. you yeah. know, in the original versions or how they were sanitized in Victoria. And it's like, well, why is this person the villain in this fairy tale? You know, it's like, what did this person ever do to anybody or whatever, you know, it's often a trade or whatever. That Why are they the villains? This is like so wrong. And so you write it. You flip it, you know, which yeah. is fun, which is a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I've found myself over the years really fascinated by Peter Pan. There was yeah. another story I wrote that uh, is on my website that is called Peter, and it's basically the story of one of the lost boys yeah. years and years and years after the end of Peter Pan. And at the end of Peter Pan, all the lost boys go back to London and have to go to school. And this slightly, one of the lost boys, has he had this weird childhood in Neverland, and he's never gotten over it, and he's totally screwed up, <laughs> and uh, he's always sort of seeking the excitement that he had in Neverland, but he actually can't experience death now, so that's a problem. And so basically the story is him lying in wait for Peter Pan, who he knows he's going to show up at Wendy's house. And, uh, you know, 
they're going to have an encounter. Um, but no, is there something, I, I find it really interesting to look at fairy tales and then look at, and oh, Lisa, you had a, a really great one, wasn't Cinderella? it uh, Cinderella? The Cinderella flip. Which one? The one after she's she's in the palace. She's been married off. Oh, right, right. Ever What's after. the name of that? Ever, Ever after. after. Because, yeah, that was the one where I was thinking, well, you know, what's so great about marrying this guy who doesn't even know who you are, really? And, it, and, and you really come from different backgrounds, you know, and different <laughs> classes, and, you know, what kind, and do you know anything about him? What's he like? And, and in my story, he turns out to be very shallow and sort of dumb, and, <laughs> and, and people make fun of her because she has the wrong accent, and, and she doesn't know how to deal with the servants. And so that was sort of fun. And then and I was also like, I'm reading a lot about, um, there's going to be fairy tales in this book, and I'm reading a lot about um, the Brothers Grimm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting. They actually rewrote the fairy tales. Mm -hmm. The parts about Snow White, where she's um, cooking and cleaning for the little dwarves, um, she didn't do that in the, in the story that they were told, but they thought that, you know, good German women should cook and clean for their, their men, and they added that. Uh, yeah. I know. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they took out, um, they, it went through, this, I don't know, it was really interesting. They, it went through seven editions, and they kept rewriting it, and they kept kind of, they sanitized it. There was stuff about, you know, a, a donkey that would shit gold, and they kind of tiptoed, you know, there was like, and from one end it came gold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting thing. Well, it strikes me too, since we're all talking about fairy tales, and with the comment that I used to read science fiction when I was a kid. Yeah. Because it kind of... Uh, Conflates with that. Well, it reawakened, science fiction does actually, in a sense, take us back, it, ideally to that sense of wonder, that yeah. ability to see the world anew for the mm -hmm. first time, to, mm -hmm. to look around and say, oh my God, that mirror on the ground might be a portal to a fairy yeah. hell, who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, looking, uh, basically, uh, I think one of the jobs of science fiction is to sh sort of show you the world in a different light, mm -hmm. whether that's a fairy tale or our society or you know possible futures or what happens if we go in this direction yeah. and that that uh transformative view of the world transformative view of literature it's uh it's all part of our job description that's right. well, that sounds like the best job in the world to me <laughs> yes it only pays for <laughs> it. yeah <laughs> well uh do we have any uh questions from the audience any uh comments questions uh rants raves or uh any transmissions from your fish? <laughs> <laughs> Hope nobody owns fish here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I don't own fish. I have a cat. Okay. She doesn't sleep in my mirror. I was, you had said, um, somebody said that, that the three of you write more fantasy, or at least what you were reading tonight is fantasy, but you sort of defined what you think science fiction is and speculative fiction is. Where would you put fantasy on that spectrum? Fantasies within, and, and speculative fiction covers the whole umbrella. It covers... Right, but everybody has bar fights about whether something is fan fantasy. It's not worth having fiction. the bar fights. Well, fan science, 
only if you Speculative get to go to the bar. fiction, I think, is sort of everything. Yeah. There's everything sort of made up. But, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you the mainstream people would say, no, you have to take out the mainstream. So, okay. But to me... The hardline science fiction people that don't think that something that's speculative counts. Yeah, but they're speculating. Yeah. Whenever you write something hard yeah. science fiction, I mean, all it means is you're speculating. Yeah. I mean, there's always people who want to, you know, who want to define things hard and fast, but really all that stuff just comes down to marketing. Yep. It's In the end, I choose not to have the bar fights because yeah. it's all marketing category. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's like, it's as we were saying earlier, um, the same story positioned in The New Yorker versus positioned yeah. in fantasy and science fiction uh, with a cover that, uh, published by Tor, with a cover that smacks of fantasy versus yeah. published by, uh, published in, I don't know who's doing them these Knopf. days, but uh, yeah, Knopf trade paperback with a, a you know, very literary looking cover. It will be read differently. Um, yeah. e e mm -hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, and and that zero could go either way, because I I know mainstream writers who are very well respected literary writers who are very well respected literary writers. Um, so it's it's marketing marketing is interesting and it can cut either way. Um, but yeah. I, I always try to stay out of the argument of is it science fiction, is it fantasy, is it mainstream, because I've had the experience of The Falling Woman, which was turned down by science fiction editors on the grounds that it wasn't science fiction or fantasy, and then won the Nebula Award because it was science fiction. So go figure. Um, and that that's just, <coughs> it's, it's in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of the marketer. Um, and it makes it, it does make it tricky to find your audience because much as I disparage marketing categories, they do have a really solid purpose. You go to the bookstore, you want to find a book that you want to read, and you don't have time to walk through all the shelves and look at all the books. So you want something that groups the books so you can find the type of book you like to read. But that means someone else gets to control the categorization which can be a problem. So it's, it's a very tricky business. Um, this is one of the reasons why there's a, bit, a lot of allure to writing young adult now. Because, I mean, young adult has its own parameters, as Pat knows and Ellen knows. But one of the nice things about it is that you, if you go into the young adult section, you will see a historical book next to a, you know, something that's obviously a science fiction book, next to a young adult romance, next to, I mean, there is no, you know, there's no breakdown by what the book is about. It has its own particular parameters geared towards that audience that you have to be respectful for. Of. But, but the subject matter doesn't matter, which is really a wondrous thing for writers. It's the ultimate bookstore where it is there's the one category, yeah. fiction. Yeah. yeah. There was there was one bookstore in the Mission uh, a couple of years back that reshelved all their bookstore all their books by color. 
Oh, wow. And it made it really interesting. Uh, Not very useful for <laughs> shopping, but, but really interesting. Actually, in, in bookstores, people will come in and say, I'd like that book that had the blue cover. Yeah, so thanks. That would have been good. <laughs> well, there, there, I, I have known of clothes stores that, okay, all the red clothes are here. Yeah. And that, that, had a cer that has a certain appeal, but you're, yeah, and you're, end up looking through, well, here's a red t-shirt, here's a red tutu, here's a red, uh, you know, cocktail dress. Uh, well, I guess if I'm looking for red, that's good, but, you know. Um. Well, we're all, all we're looking for is a decent book to read. I mean, and that's, uh, oh, yes. there's, there's <laughs> actually quite a few published, and but also they, as one might expect, Proved to be a small percentage of all the books published. Yeah. yeah. So it's there's so many good books though being written in in this genre. It's just amazing, and and I you know I continue to run into these people from all these other different parts of my life, and a lot of them now ask me. They'll say, well, write down the names of some authors and books that I should be reading. You know, and like two pages later, I'm like going, and this, and you must read this, and you must read this, and you must, and and they're all. You know, I never know if they maybe will be too weird for them, but I can guarantee that they're all written beautifully. You know, that, that, that I think the quality of writing in this field is just exquisite now. You know, I mean, there's some stuff that's crappy or some stuff that's not this or that, but the, the level of the writing, you know, because I've been doing a lot of reading in like mainstream reading the last couple of years because of going back to grad school, which there's many, you know, again, there's many wonderful things being written. None of it excites me, and none of it is any more beautifully written than, than stuff that's being written in this field now. Just the level of writing itself is just to die for. Yeah, I, I would agree. There's a, uh, and I, I think this field also has expanded <coughs> enormously. I mean, the tent has gotten a lot oh, bigger yeah. Yeah. in the last 10 years even. I mean, the, the stuff that's out there that is included, that either includes elements of speculative fiction or is actually shelved as speculative mm -hmm. fiction, has become a, a, you know, there's just a lot more of it. Yeah. Should we see if there's any other questions any other from questions? the audience? I was, I was gonna ask, and um, it's not really a question, but I've heard this one comment, I'm a librarian, and if I spent a dollar for every time someone asked me about uh, if I knew where the red book on dogs was, <laughs> 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 I could go visit that bookstore um, for, for that reason. And it was really quite an art, you know, kind of like living art. Uh, I could visit it for several weeks, and, um, and it was pretty amazing because they had all the shades of green. Oh, my gosh. It was gorgeous. It was really, really amazing. I was curious about the story that you read, what kind of um, background research you did, I guess, about fish. Because there was one interview <laughs> talking about the fish in the sky. Yeah. And, you know, how the herring moves and how the, and I'm thinking, you know, did you go to a lot of aquariums? <laughs> well, that, that one came up out of my head, actually. Uh, um, another writer, Walter John Williams, lives in, I, I've gone to New Mexico quite a bit, and he lives under the flyway. There's like a huge migratory thing that goes right past his house. He lives a little south of Albuquerque. And I haven't gotten to be there when they do that. But, you know, I've seen a lot of specials on birds and, and the migration stuff. So that kind of popped out at me. Um, I did a lot of I did a lot of research. The the scene with the, the fish that looks like a clown face. I love that. That's actually there's that wonderful, wonderful um, um, series that Discovery Channel did. 
And one of the things they did was of this thing, and they had this scene of down in the middle of the bottom of this fish, you know, which was how at the time I imagined it. It's like, God, that looks like a clown's face kind of squished with little pseudopods instead of a neck. And that was exactly how that hit me. It was like this poor fish, it's like, it, it doesn't swim. It literally bounces off its little pseudopod fin feet. And that's, you know, that just struck me so much. I went, oh, that's just got to go in the story. That has to be the turning point for this, for this, um, care for you, for you. <laughs> um, but I did, I did a lot of research. The, um, the, the two generating ideas were the Hasidic carp and the Quranic fish, which are news items. They're actual news items. And one of them showed up, uh, the Hasidic carp showed up like four or five years ago. I think it was like 2004. And then, uh, like a couple years later, or a few years later, the Quranic fish came up, and I, and I went, well, this is proof of a god, because this is God giving ideas to writers and saying, <laughs> you know, here's really weird shit that's apparently really happening in the world. If you can't make a story out of this, I, you know, <laughs> I'm driving you out of Eden. Um, and so I kind of waited. I waited for a few more years for the third. I figured, you know, rule of three, there's going to be a third one. And finally, I got tired of waiting and just decided to write it. Um, and I just did a lot, I did a lot of research, um, Googled a lot, butterfly fish are whisperers, they are whisperers actually, they are notorious whisperers, and um, has to do with their swim bladders. So, I, <laughs> and I'm a research junkie, a lot of us in this field are total research junkies. And if someone would like give me a grant to do nothing but research for stories I wouldn't necessarily ever write. Oh yeah. Like they'd give me like $40,000 oh, yeah. a year to just We're research. We're there. We're there. You'll oh, never see another story from me, but you'll know I'm really happy somewhere doing Hang out research, research weird stuff. Yeah. Oh man. You know, and I think a lot of us have a lot of trouble with, we start writing these stories and, and the thing from the Turkey City Lexicon, which is, it's not so much I suffered from my research and now you and now you will you too. To, too. You'll yeah. have to too. It's more like I you know, I enjoyed the hell out of myself with my research and by God you'd better like it too, because I'm putting it all in here. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I'm I'm a, one reason I write novels very slowly and it takes me a long time, as you can tell, it took me four years to get around to writing this story is why should I write it when I can have so much fun researching it, you know? I think my favorite line in that scene was you think you, you you come to hate the oceanographer, <laughs> or it's like yeah, right, right. That's just like yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I love. You can tell at least two of us are research junkies. No, I'm and you definitely. Do it in yeah. yeah, I just start researching something and then go off on tangents. We and, should belong to. Oh, this is interesting, and yeah, yeah, like I was just saying that I had this. I started re researching. I wanted to have this family because I wanted to do um, a history of this family. And they live in Napa Valley, and I and I was wondering, well, what happened to them during Prohibition? And I thought, ooh, they could be smugglers. And I did this whole like, there's nothing in the library about what happened in Napa Valley during Prohibition, and they they actually didn't. Nobody smuggled, so I was really disappointed. But I read like what <laughs> you can make it up. I was thinking you're that. a fiction writer. Well, I'm you know? thinking that, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I just I like I there was a book in that they were selling on Amazon about, you know, California prohibition. Okay, I'm buying that one. And then I'm like reading the whole thing and it has nothing to do with my story. It's about, you know, yeah. people, people, oh, people setting up stills in the desert near where you live. Oh uh, yeah, and cause, now it's meth labs. Oh yeah. <laughs> Underground <laughs> marijuana farm, farms. It's, 
Well, all that research, ultimately, you you, you sort of uh, say, oh, but this could be a story right. sometime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sometime. Eventually, I'll have it will to percolate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll, if not in this story, it'll be another. When I wrote the two, I wrote these two books about Catherine de' Medici, and I ended up with a bookshelf filled with nothing but books about that period of the Renaissance, cooking books, historical cooking books. Mm -hmm. There are menus in the back, I mean, recipes at the back, all of which I tried out, and it's when I first started gaining weight. Um, you know, research can really take yeah. <laughs> your life in a big way, and I kind of felt at the end of it that someone should, like, give me an honorary PhD in early mannerist, late, late Italian Renaissance studies, because well, I, I know that. more than a lot of people. Who I did that when I was, re I was researching the Elizabethan times, right. and, and I would go to the UC Berkeley library, and, and I didn't have, I wasn't a student, so I would have to fill out a card. This was back then, I think it's different now, and I'd fill out a card, and give the card to somebody, and they'd go and get my book and bring my book back to me. And, and then one day they said, we don't have enough AIDS. You'll just have to go get your books yourself. And I went, wow, really? <laughs> and I just, I just kind of <laughs> went into these stacks. I'm like, wow, this is cool. I never knew this was here. And, then, and there were a couple books where they said, we don't have this book. And there it was, right on the shelf which I never would have known if I hadn't I'd gotten to go back, gotten to go back there. Yeah. And I also went to the rare book room and, and I handled a book from 1610, which is very cool. Mm. I just have to mention that I happen to be a drug and alcohol librarian. Um, oh. and, I, and although I deal with prevention, um, I know a bunch of librarians in, in my field that um, might, might be able to give you some background on Really? I'm going to have to talk to you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I was going to say, there's an author appearing at Capitola Book Cafe a week from Sunday who wrote a book about Napa during the Prohibition. Oh, my God. You're kidding me. I kid you not. Right. It's down. called When the Rivers Ran See? Red. See? Research happens <laughs> everywhere. Oh I'll, I'll email you the link. Okay. Capitola, huh? Yeah. This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a couple. He had a question, then they had a question. Question. Lisa, in one of your novels, I think Dark City's Underground, you revealed the uh, mystical significance yeah. And I was always disappointed when the BART system has now like gotten bigger and Oh, I'm I'm so disappointed <laughs> because what I liked was I was on the BART train one time and it said your final destination is coma. And I thought, boy, you know, I know that. You know, I don't want to be really reminded of it. And and now it goes beyond coma. I'm so disappointed. Well, it's, it's the promise of an afterlife. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, your, your final decision is Milburn. Milburn. <laughs> <laughs> Today was Ellen an, I'm a research junkie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, do you guys feel like writing becomes homework because research is so much fun? Or is it just me? Sometimes. Sometimes. So, or I will research and research and research and research and never get around to actually writing I've got a bunch of story of, yeah. until I've got a deadline because researching is so much more well, you, you can also, I can also feel in my bones when yeah. the research has become procrastination. Yeah. Um, and I have to sort of, I, I basically put a lid on it to move on. Oh, you have so much more discipline than <laughs> I have so much less time. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, yeah. I stay away from the UC Berkeley Library, so I, I don't have a, a card there anymore. I, actually... These days, uh, I, I do a lot of writing on the train while I'm commuting. And one of the things that's so great about that is no access to the internet because I'm not on the bullet train. So it's like, nope, 
you just got to, you know, leave that hole there. You can't go, oh, there's a hole there. I think I'll fall into a two-hour <laughs> research binge on Google. Um, so, yeah. Well, when you put all this research into your books, do you ever have to find go back and weed some of it out because oh. you go, oh my God, this reads like a thesis paper, not a novel. Actually, uh, I'm sure there, the Clan of the Cave Bear is one that, uh, for me, every once in a while, you'll trip over, you know, someone, it, I remember one chase scene where all of a sudden it stops in the middle to describe how <laughs> baskets are made or something. <laughs> and uh, when, when I do get a little carried away with my research, in The Falling Woman, I learned more about pot shirts than anyone needs to know. I mean, I spent a summer on an archaeological dig. I, you know, I really knew a lot about pot shirts and I had to put it all in yeah. there and then I had to take it all out. Or not all of it. I left a, like a line about pot shirts here or there, but no one wants to know everything we know about pot shirts or cooking, cooking food or, uh, you know, they want to know a little bit. They just want the highlights. Yeah. Food is a little easier. You can actually write about food quite a bit, I've found. And get away with it. Yeah. 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 Then, then your books get labeled as being food porn, but then, you know, then they sell to food junkies. Yeah. But a certain amount of research, I mean, yeah. it's really, it's, it is, you know, much as I try to uh, not over-research a certain amount of research is necessary, both so that you're honest to your subject matter and so that, you know, that's, that's the good, that's the honest side of it, but also so that you have the proper, you can present the proper facade to the reader that you are a total master of this subject area. Yeah, because there's going to be somebody writing you a letter saying, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. oh, no, that was, they were red, not green, or whatever. Oh, you know. well, and then, uh, you know, historical, historical fiction, one of the things that I've always found quite intriguing is invariably you're writing something that's historical, and there's some scene where people are taking off their clothes. You know, it happens. And you have to know about Victorian underwear. Yeah. I mean, researching undergarments across the, the <laughs> centuries is, is very interesting. Well, also, um, when, you're, uh, when you're doing this kind of research, it, it also lends an air of authority to your narrative. Absolutely. So that when you, when you spewed out all this great real stuff and when you start letting the unreal creep in, it seems that, oh, well, sure. I yeah, mean, fairies uh, yeah, yeah. right there with everything else. I learned that from Borges because I started reading Borges's work when I was in my teens. And I would read along and it just was all seemed so made up. But then I'd come across some little nugget that I knew was true. And I'd go, so therefore all everything else had to be true. So the level, you know, it was like trompe l'oeil writing. It completely fooled the <laughs> eye. And the, the level of verisimilitude just went, went, if this is true, then all the rest has to be true. I think that's one of the, the great benefits of researching. Any further audience questions? Well, we've solved all the, all <laughs> the solutions of life. You all now know that it's the coma, then the afterlife. Take the... Ask Lisa, she'll tell you what train to take. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you very much. This was great fun. Thank, thank yes. you all very much. Thanks for coming. And uh, join us next month. Uh, Rena will tell you where and when and email all of you immediately. Thanks. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.